0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's uh, tell you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Let's start off with a couple of obituaries. This first one is from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 16, 2023, Robert William Rosencrantz, April 16, 1931 to March 8, 2023, Author Unknown. Born in Chicago, Illinois in 1931 to George and Catherine Rosencrantz, Robert Bob enjoyed summers as a child at his grandparents' farm in rural Indiana. A move to Indiana in middle school was a highlight of his childhood because it brought him closer to his large extended family and out of the city. Soon after high school, he volunteered for the Air Force and served as a radio operator during the Korean War. After his tour, he returned to Indiana where he had met Martha Jean Clark at a church function, jo- uh, joining in marriage in September 1960. In 1965, they purchased a small farm in rural Indiana and raised three children among dogs, cats, and various livestock. uh, Burnett's Creek ran next to the property. Many hours were spent tending to the farm property that he loved. Bob encouraged his children to attend college and was extremely proud that all three were graduates of Purdue University. Bob worked as a typesetter for the local newspaper. He left the industry in the mid-1970s when digital typecasting replaced Linotype, taking a position with Eli Lilly in production. Upon retirement, Bob and Jean moved to Arizona, where they were actively involved in RV trips, camping, cruisers, and many happy hours with friends. Bob loved entertaining and had a wonderful sense of humor with a smile that lit up the room. He took on many roles in community plays and was a member of a local group. Hometown banjoliers playing washboard. He will be greatly missed by his wife, Jean, children, Melinda, Mark, and Walter, son-in-law, Jamie, daughters-in-law, Susan, and Lauren, and his grandchildren, Katrina, Genevieve, and Felix. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. John 16:22. That was Robert William Rosencrantz. April 16, 1931 to March 8, 2023. Author unknown. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April 16, 2023. All right, now here's this one, from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 18, 2023. Ben Ferencz, 1920 to 2023, prosecutor and investigator of Nazi war crimes, by Mike Schneider. Ben Ferencz. The last living prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials who tried Nazis for genocidal war crimes and was among the first outside witnesses to document the atrocities of Nazi labor and concentration camps has died at 103. Varenz died Friday evening in Boynton Beach, Florida, according to St. John's University law professor John Barrett, who runs a blog about the Nuremberg trials. The death also was confirmed by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. Today, the world lost a leader in the quest for justice for victims of genocide and related crimes, the museum treated. Born in Transylvania in 1920, Verans immigrated as a boy with his parents to New York to escape anti-Semitism. After graduating from Harvard Law School, he joined the U.S. Army and took part in the Normandy invasion in World War II. He became an investigator of Nazi war crimes against U.S. soldiers as part of the War Crimes section of the Judge Advocates Office. When U.S. intelligence reports described soldiers encountering groups of starving people in Nazi camps watched over by SS guards, Ferenc followed up with visits, first at the Ordruf labor camp in Germany and then at the notorious Buchenwald concentration camp at those camps and later others he found bodies piled up like cordwood and helpless skeletons with diarrhea dysentery, typhus tb pneumonia and other ailments retching in their loud rid- louse ridden bunks or on the ground with only their pathetic eyes pleading for help forenz wrote in an account of his of his life the buchenwald concentration camp was a charnel house of indescribable horrors, Ferenc wrote. There is no doubt that I was indelibly traumatized by my experiences as a war crimes investigator of Nazi extermination centers. I still try not to talk or think about the details. After the war, Ferenc was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army and returned to New York to begin practicing law. But that was short-lived. Because of his experiences as a war crimes investigator, he was recruited to help prosecute Nazi war criminals at the Nuremberg Trials, which had begun under the leadership of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson. Before leaving for Germany, he married his childhood sweetheart, Gertrude. At 27, with no previous trial experience, Ferenc became chief prosecutor for a 1947 case in which 22 former commanders were charged with murdering more than 1 million Jews, Romani, and others in Eastern Europe. Rather than depending on witnesses, Ferenc mostly relied on official German documents to make his case. All the defendants were convicted and more than a dozen were sentenced to death, even though Ferenc hadn't asked for the death penalty. With the war crimes trials winding down, Vereins went to work for a consortium of Jewish charitable groups to help Holocaust survivors regain properties, businesses, artworks, Torah scrolls, and other Jewish religious items confiscated by the Nazis. In later decades, Vereins championed the creation of an international court that could prosecute any government's leaders for war crimes. Those dreams were realized in 2002 with the establishment of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Forenz is survived by a son and three daughters. His wife died in 2019. That was Ben Forenz, 1920-2023, Prosecutor and Investigator of Nazi War Crimes by Mike Schneider from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 18, 2023, Schneider writes for the Associated Press. Okay, on to an international story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, April 19, 2023. Zelensky, Putin rallied troops for war's next phase. As Kiev gets Western weapons for a possible counteroffensive, the Ukrainian and Russian leaders visit forces. By Adam Pemble. Kiev, Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin visited the command post for his forces in Ukraine for the second time in two months, officials said Tuesday, as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made his uh, latest trip near the front. The visits. On different days and in different provinces, sought to uh, stiffen uh, the resolve of soldiers as the war approached its 14th month and as Kiev readies a possible counteroffensive with Western-supplied weapons. Some of the most significant weapons appear to have arrived in Ukraine. Germany's federal government website lists a Patriot Surface-to-Air Guide missile system as among the items delivered to Ukraine within the last week. Ukraine has been pressing allies for months to send Patriots and other air defense systems and Germany's appeared to be the first to have arrived. Ukrainian Air Force spokesman Yuriy Inat declined to confirm Tuesday that a Patriot had arrived. Local news outlet RBC Ukraine reported but said that receiving the missiles would be a landmark event. Allowing Ukrainians to knock down Russian targets from a greater distance. Elsewhere, Kremlin videos showed Putin arriving by helicopter at Russian forces command post in southern Ukraine's Kyrgyzstan province, then flying to the headquarters of the Russian National Guard and Luhansk province in the country's east. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said the took place the visit took place on the visits took place on Monday. Dressed in a dark suit, Putin appeared to chair meetings with his military top brass during both stops. The locations of the military headquarters weren't disclosed, making it impossible to assess how close they were to the front line. The authenticity of the video could not be independently verified. On Tuesday, Zelensky made his latest trip to visit units in Avdivka, a city in Donetsk province where fierce battles are taking place. He heard reports about the battlefield situation and handed out awards. Zelensky has stepped up visits to areas of his country feeling the brunt of Russia's invasion, uh, shuttling across the country, often by train. As with Putin, the Ukrainian leader's wartime trips usually, uh, usually aren't publicized until after he has left an area. Official coverage of Putin's trip showed him in mostly formal and ceremonious settings, while photographs issued by Zelensky's office showed the Ukrainian Ukrainian president taking selfies and eating cake with soldiers. Russia's uh, war in Ukraine has become largely deadlocked amid heavy fighting in the east, particularly around the Donetsk province city of Bakhmut, which Uh, for eight and a half months has been the stage for the war's longest and bloodiest battle. Kyrgyzstan and Luhansk, along with the Donetsk and Zephazia provinces, were illegally annexed by Russia in September, after local referendums that Ukraine and the West denounced as shams. Zelensky advisor Mikhail uh, Podolyak was Scathing is in criticism of Putin's trip, accusing the Russian leader of degradation and being the author of mass murders in the war. Both then and now, large parts of of Donetsk, Kyrgyzstan and Zaporizhzhia, as well as some of Luhansk province, have remained under Ukrainian control. In November, Russian forces abandoned territory in Kyrgyzstan, including the region's namesake capital. In a parallel development, the Moscow-appointed governor of the occupied part of Donetsk province, Denis Pushilin, went to Minsk, the capital of neighboring Belarus, and won pledges of support from President Alexander Lukashenko, a Putin ally. The Kremlin forces Minsk uh, to to get involved in the war more actively in order to pressure Ukraine with threats of Belarus joining. Belarusian political analyst Valery Kabalevich said in a telephone interview. It is clear that Pushlin's visit to Minsk has been synchronized with Putin's trip to the occupied Ukrainian regions and it aims to show that the Belarusian threat hasn't gone away. In both locations he visited, Putin congratulated the military to visions on Orthodox Easter, which was celebrated Sunday, and presented them with icons of the faith. Speaking to senior officers at the Kherson headquarters, Putin handed them a copy of an orthodox icon he said had belonged to a famous Russian general of the 19th century. The senior officers at the meetings reflected which ones were currently in favor with Putin. Colonel General Mikhail Tepelinsky, the chief of Russia's airborne troops, was among the top generals at the Kherson base. Tepelinsky, a career officer who rose from lieutenant to become chief of the elite military branch, is known for being popular with his troops. However, last fall he was temporarily relieved from his position amid a spat with Russia's top military brass. He was restored to the, restored to the job this year, and his attendance at the meeting with Putin indicated he, that he was back in favor. A senior official who met with Putin in the Luthansk region, Colonel General Alexander Lappin, had also been relieved of his duties as commanding officer in Ukraine's northeast after being blamed for a hasty Russian pullback from parts of the Kharkiv region in the face of a Ukrainian counteroffensive in September. He later was named Chief of Staff of the Ground Forces and his meeting with Putin signaled that he had the President's trust. Putin's and Pushlin's trips came as Ukraine is preparing a new counteroffensive in an effort to reclaim territories. In addition to Germany, the United States and Netherlands have pledged to provide Patriots to Ukraine and a group of 65 Ukrainian soldiers uh, was trained in in their use last month in Oklahoma. The Patriot is a surface-to-air guided missile system first deployed in the 1980s that can target aircraft, cruise missiles, and short-range ballistic missiles. A Patriot missile battery typically includes six mobile launchers. Zelensky has said Ukraine needs at least 20 Patriot batteries. Ukrainian officials have said they're depleting Russian forces in eastern Ukraine while preparing for a counteroffensive. Meanwhile, at least three civilians were killed and 11 were wounded in Ukraine between Monday and Tuesday, according to Ukraine's presidential office, which said most of the casualties were in the Donbass region. Six people were reported wounded in artillery fire in Kyrgyzstan City. In another in in a series of possible cross-border attacks into Russia, a drone that a Russian official said was from Ukraine hit a military office in the Bryansk town of Novozykbov. Governor Alexander Bogomá said on Telegram that the building was damaged but that no one was hurt. That was Zelensky. Putin rallied troops for war's next phase by Adam Pemble. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, uh, April 19, 2023, Pemble writes for the Associated Press. All right, Now we've got a couple of articles with regards to our senior U.S. Senator, Dianne Feinstein. Uh, this is from the Perspective Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 18, 2023. Feinstein's lefty foes exploit illness to hijack seat. Time may soon come. For Senator to resign, but Newsom must let voters pick successor. By Mark Z. Barabak Diane Feinstein wished to make a statement. The former San Francisco mayor was running for California governor, and knowing she would never win the endorsement of the far left, chose instead to stick to those activists in in the eye. Yes, I support the death penalty, Feinstein told fellow Democrats at the party state convention. It is an issue that cannot be fudged or hedged. A chorus of boos sounded like thunder. Feinstein stared straight ahead unblinking for nearly 30 seconds as the fury washed over her. Meantime, cameras rolled to capture the made-for-TV moment and tend to dispel the notion of Feinstein as some kooky San Francisco liberal. That was back in 1990. But for some Democrats, the anger never let up. And that with Feinstein ailing. And some of her ideological foes are hoping to exploit the moment by agitating for the senator's uh, resignation and replacement with someone more to their liking, which is to say further to the political left. A favorite is Oakland's Representative Barbara Lee, a declared candidate to replace Feinstein. And it should be noted, not among those calling for the senator to immediately stand aside. The time may soon come for the 89-year-old Feinstein to call it a career, despite her deep reluctance. Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who would pick a replacement, should then resist efforts on the left to hijack the Senate seat by appointing Lee or some other uber-liberal. He should appoint a caretaker who agrees to finish out Feinstein's term, which ends in January 2025, and leave it to voters to sort among several candidates bidding to be her long-term successor. Declined, Feinstein's decline has not been well, has been well noted. It's not cognitive issues, however, but a bad case of shingles that has kept her house bound from Calif- in California, a continent away from her responsibilities in Washington. She hasn't cast a Senate vote since mid February. Plenty of senators have been absent for extended periods. Demo- uh, Pennsylvania Democrat. John Fetterman, who was just elected in November, spent more than six weeks in the hospital being treated for severe depression. Republican Leader Mitch McConnell returned to the Senate on Monday after a six-week recovery from a fall. Feinstein's non-attendance has uh, been more acutely felt because of her role on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Without her presence. Democrats have been unable to confirm a backlog of President Biden's judicial nominees, an important part of his agenda, and a high priority for the party given President Trump's rightward reshaping of the federal courts. In a concession, the latest after declining to seek re-election, Feinstein last week asked the Senate's Democratic leadership to appoint a temporary replacement on the committee until she can return to Washington. That, however, requires consent from a significant number of Republicans, which seems quite unlikely. So Feinstein may face a choice, head back to Capitol Hill, whatever physical difficulties it entails, or continue being a hindrance to her party and president. Even those sympathetic to the senator, who smell more of a whiff of ageism and misogyny and calls for her resignation, suggest Feinstein cannot and should not attempt to carve out to, uh, to serve out her term convalescing in San Francisco. We are going to need her vote on the Senate floor eventually, said Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, uh, adding that Feinstein's return sure better happen before the debt ceiling vote. If Feinstein were to step down, it would present Newsom with a quandary he has largely visited upon himself. When Senator Kamala Harris resigned to become vice president, the governor named Alex Padilla as her replacement. Newsom was criticized for failing to appoint a black woman, filling a void Harris left with her departure, and so, in a characteristically rash move, Newsom pledged to do just that if Feinstein were to vacate her seat. Lee fits that speci- the specifications as a black woman with deep political experience. But it's different now, with a hard fought Senate campaign underway. Irvine Representative Katie Porter and Burbank's Adam B. Schiff are both strong candidates for the seat. The governor shouldn't be substituting his judgment for that that of voters by giving an advantage to Lee or any other candidate with the primary election less than a year off. Feinstein never found favor with the far left. Too conservative, relatively speaking. Too proper and prim. But for much of her career, she was the most popular politician in California. Her positions, such as support for the death penalty, closely aligning with those of the state's political mainstream. Even as Feinstein sought reelection in twenty eighteen at age eighty five, with her infirmity when her infirmity was no secret, she easily turned aside a challenge from the more liberal, Kevin DeLeon. So it's no coincidence the loudest voices now calling for Feinstein's ouster are coming from the left. Chief among them, Representative Roe Khanna, a Bernie Sanders Democrat, and co chair of Lee's Senate campaign. Lee is deeply beloved in her East Bay Area district and greatly respected by Democrats she she has served alongside. It is questionable, though, whether her politics will prove palatable to voters statewide. When Newsom was fighting an attempted recall, Democrats were quick to condemn it as a power grab and an effort by Republicans to seize an office they would otherwise have a hard time winning under normal circumstances. It's no different when liberal Democrats try to short-circuit the process. Lee should make her best case as a candidate for the Senate seat without intervention from the governor. Then voters can decide. That was Feinstein's Lefty Foes Exploit Illness to Hijack Seat by Mark Z. Barabak from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, April 18, 2023. Here's one other follow-up article from from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April 20, 2023. On Feinstein, White House says it is her decision. Biden signals patience while criticizing GOP moves to block his judicial nominees. By Courtney Srebrenian. Washington. California Senator Dianne Feinstein's health issues are threatening to imperil President Biden's quest to remake the federal judiciary, but so far the White House is willing to be patient. It is her decision to make it. Uh, Her decision to make when it relates to anything about her future, White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre told reporters Wednesday. It is flat wrong to seek partisan advantage from the health issues of a colleague. Republicans blocked a Democratic effort on Tuesday to temporarily replace Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee, where the absence of the Democrats' uh, tie-breaking vote has left some of Biden's judicial nominees languishing. Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, uh, could bring the matter to a floor vote, but Democrats do not have the 10 Republican votes needed to succeed. Democrats have few options other than waiting for Feinstein's return, but when that might be remains unclear as she works from home in San Francisco. The quandary has left Democrats divided on how to deal with the 89-year-old Senator's extended absence which threatens to derail judicial nominees at a moment when the party's priorities, including abortion rights, are being challenged in federal courts. Feinstein hasn't cast a vote since February 16, and has missed about 60 of the last 82 votes held in the upper chamber so far this session. She announced in March that she had been hospitalized with shingles and said last week that her return to Washington was delayed due to related complications. A few congressional Democrats, including Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat of Fremont, have called for Feinstein to step aside. Co-chair of Oakland Democratic Representative Barbara Lee's campaign to replace Feinstein, Khanna has been perhaps the most vocal of the group, tweeting last week that not speaking out undermines our credibility as elected representatives of the people. For now, the White House has sided with most Democratic lawmakers, who say Feinstein should be allowed to. Time to decide whether she's able to serve out her term which ends in January which ends in twenty twenty four. Senate Judiciary Chairman Richard J. Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, said Feinstein, said Democrats would try to give Feinstein an opportunity to return as quickly as possible, while Schumer said that he had spoken with her last week and that she hoped to return to return soon but that sentiment may change depending on the length of Feinstein's absence and the profound impact it has on the Senate's ability to pursue the White House's agenda. Biden has made it a priority to shape the federal bench, both in the number and diversity of judges. Democrats have confirmed the president's judicial nominees at a relatively fast clip, seating 97 judges, including Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, on the federal bench during Biden's first two years in office and confirming 22 more uh, this year. Democrats have sought to outpace the 231 judges, including three Supreme Court justices whom Senate Republicans confirmed in key judicial vacancies under former President Trump. Biden is unlikely to top his predecessor, according to Russell Wheeler, a Brookings Institution scholar who follows the judiciary. While Feinstein's absence has slowed momentum, a dearth of vacancies to be filled will also make it difficult for Biden's judicial appointments to keep pace with Trump's. It's probably too early to get too concerned about the problems created by Feinstein's absence, Wheeler said. The bigger problem is, without a vacancy, nobody's going anywhere. Though Republicans are unwilling to accommodate Feinstein's request to appoint a temporary replacement in her absence, GOP members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have agreed to move forward with nominees who have bipartisan support according to a Durbin spokesperson. Conversations are still ongoing about which nominees would be up for a vote, the spokesperson said, but about 10 are eligible. There are 15 judicial nominees who have had hearings but are waiting for a committee vote, according to the American Constitution Society, a progressive legal organization. 18 judicial nominations have already had a panel vote and can be brought to the Senate floor for a full vote, and some of them could be cleared without Feinstein. But the episode is not the first Democrats have grappled with in regard to Feinstein, the party's eldest senator and longest-serving woman in the upper chamber. In recent years, she has received an increasing number of questions about her cognitive health, and in 2020, she stepped down as the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee after facing pressure to do so. The most senior member of the Democratic caucus, she also passed up the role of Senate President Pro Tempore, which would have placed her third in the line of presidential succession. Feinstein's mental fitness and age are a politically sensitive subject for Biden, who at 80 is the nation's oldest president and has faced questions about whether he should seek another term. While in the Senate, he recruited Feinstein to, do the, to the judiciary panel, and the two former colleagues are longtime friends. She endorsed him over Vice President Kamala Harris when the then-junior senator, California senator sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. But as the White House and Democrats continue to urge patience with Feinstein's recovery, speculation has begun about what might happen if she chooses not to return. California Gov. Gavin Newsom has vowed to appoint a black woman if there is a Senate vacancy. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, who spent more than a decade in the House, weighed in on Wednesday during a visit to Capitol Hill. When asked whether Newsom should stick to his pledge to support a black woman, Bass said that's what he said. He pledged. As for Feinstein, Bass said, I just hope that she gets better soon. And obviously we need her back here so we can get those judges going that was on feinstein white house says it is her decision by courtney Subraman- Subramanian from the uh, los angeles times thursday april 20th 2023 and now we have an, uh, an opinion article with regards to our senator diane feinstein from the opinion section of the los angeles times thursday april 20th 2023 Feinstein's Problematic Absence from the Senate by Dr. Patrick soon Executive Chairman. We do not envy Senator Dianne Feinstein. California's longest-serving senator and the most senior member of the U.S. Senate planned to finish her term and retire after the 2024 election. But a bad case of shingles has left her blind at home in San Francisco since early March unable to travel to Washington and with no clear indication of when she might improve enough to go back to work. Her absence wouldn't be a big deal except that in the closely divided Senate, Feinstein is a crucial Democratic vote, particularly on President Biden's judicial appointments. A dozen nominees are currently awaiting approval in the the Judiciary Committee. With Feinstein present, Democrats have 11 members to Republicans 10. With Feinstein absent, the panel is evenly split, and Biden's picks cannot move forward without GOP support, which is no certainty these days given the partisan and ideological battle for influence in the courts. While judicial appointments may be the foremost concern, Democrats' slim majority uh, in the Senate also means Feinstein's continued absence will make raising the debt ceiling or approving Biden's nominee for Labor Secretary difficult, if not impossible last week. Acknowledging that her recovery has been slower than, than hoped, Feinstein asked Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, to appoint a temporary replacement for her on the Judiciary Committee. Schumer was willing, but Republicans rejected the idea, loath to allow Biden's judicial picks to move forward. That puts pressure on back on Feinstein. The Senator is in the extraordinarily difficult position of having to reckon with how her health might affect her ability to return to Washington. The decision is hers to make, in consultation with her doctors, family, and close associates. Feinstein has been a steadfast public servant for decades. Surely she knows her role in the Senate is so important that a long leave will have serious consequences for her constituents, her party, and the nation. Her continued absence could stymie progress on issues she has dedicated a career to advancing, including women's rights, LGBTQ protections, and gun control. The Judiciary Committee confirms federal judge, judicial nominees who wield incalculable power over America's, Americans' lives. Biden has been racing, racing to fill federal court vacancies over the last two years, adding more women, people of color, and those with diverse professional backgrounds on the bench. Biden's nominees offer an important counterbalance to the huge number of federal judges and conservative Supreme Court justices that then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, was able to push through during President Trump's term. The shift in the courts has already had demonstrable effects. The conservative majority on the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, and the Texas judge who invalidated the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the abortion drug Ms. Fristone, earlier this month on spe- uh, specious grounds, was a Trump appointee. Feinstein is also has to consider her ad- admirable legacy on controlling the indiscriminate uh, use of semi-automatic weapons and other rational gun controls. And then to look at how judges appointed by opponents uh, of those controls are undermining all that she worked for. Her continued absence blocks the confirmation of judges who likely are less aligned with extremist pro-gun views as the many judges appointed and confirmed during the Trump era. Federal judges have lifetime appointments, so Democrats have little recourse uh, recourse except to fill vacancies with appointees who will not roll back decades of bodily autonomy and gun control or support intolerance and discrimination when they have the power to do so. As long as Feinstein is, is unable to work, they don't have that power, and that's a situation that cannot continue. This is probably not how Feinstein envisioned her final years in office. Ideally, she would have the time and space to recover in peace and return to her life's work. But these are not ideal times. With the balance of power so tenuous in Washington and the stakes so high at every election, there's no leeway to keep missing critical votes. We wish Feinstein well in the coming days, as she considers perhaps the most difficult decision of her long storied career. That was Feinstein's problematic absence from the Senate, uh, by Dr. Patrick Soon-Shiong, executive chairman, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, April twentieth, twenty twenty-three. All right, now for all of you sports entertainment fans out there, you know who you are, myself included. This is from the website called thesportster.com and it says MJF deletes tweet about what he'd do to Goldberg if he joined AEW. With Goldberg seeking out a retirement match, AEW World Champion MJF gave his opinion on what he'd do if the Hall of Famer showed up in AEW by Sean Van Horn uh, for Friday, April 21st, 2022, 23. that is. Goldberg has been in the news a lot lately. First, there were reports that his WWE contract was expiring. Fans fantasy booked dream matches that could have taken him to AEW of all places, even though, uh, though we knew it would never happen. Then came quotes from Goldberg himself, where he spoke about Vince McMahon promising him a retirement match that never came to be. Nobody tells me when I'm done, period, he said. With a quote like that, maybe Goldberg and AEW wasn't so crazy after all. In response to a fan tweeting about his desire to see an MJF vs. Goldberg match, the AEW world champion couldn't stop himself from responding in true MJF fashion, tweeting, I beat the living guest out of this roided up Jew. Whether MJF was just trying to rile everyone up or realized he may have gone a little bit too far, the tweet has since been deleted. Could we really see Goldberg in AEW one day? The promotion's fanbase may not be so quick to accept the star as his style and persona doesn't match a lot of what AEW puts on TV. But there is no doubt that him arriving at AEW for one last match would be a huge deal. AEW President Tony Khan has even spoken about Goldberg telling Adrian Hernandez last month, I have a lot of respect for Bill. I think Bill Goldberg is a great professional athlete and has a great career in pro wrestling and has had a great career in pro wrestling and is a very nice person. He's a household name in pro wrestling, so it's interesting to hear that he is a free agent, so that's something to follow. He's one of the biggest names in wrestling and certainly will be something else to keep uh, keep an eye on for us. It's not looking likely at the moment for Goldberg to return to the WWE, but a short final run in AEW could be the perfect goodbye. It could have one more run in with, uh, with Sting or face off with AEW's own version of Goldberg, Wardlaw. Then there's the possibility of MJF. Just the promos alone would be worth the price of admission. That was MJF deletes tweet about what he'd do to Goldberg if he joined AEW by Sean Van Horn from thesportster.com for uh, Friday, February 21st, 2023. And by the way, MJF's full name is Maxwell Jacob Friedman. Here's actually a related article from thesportster.com. This is called Eric Bishop dares AEW's Tony Khan to book CM Punk vs. Goldberg for all in. Eric Bishop dared at AEW president Tony Khan to make CM Punk Goldberg's retirement match for All In at Wembley Stadium. By Sean Van Horn for April 17, 2023. It was a big moment when Tony Khan announced that AEW would be bringing back the All In pay-per-view for August 27 at the legendary Wembley Stadium. Fans and wrestlers are alike in all and all like already fantasy, fantasy booking a card that could possibly be held in front of more than 90,000 fans. Many are arguing that the main event should include CM Punk. Even FTR's Dax Harwood chimed in saying it should be Punk and FDR, FDR versus The Elite. One man who has worked for AEW in the past but is doubtful to ever again is Eric Bischoff in recent he recently suggested his own all-in main event during the strictly business podcast i think Wembley's gonna do great without with or without punk i would prefer if i was tony khan to do it without punk because that makes a real statement right who drew the house did aew draw the house or did cm punk draw the house i would absolutely not book cm punk on that show even though i would know that doing so would ensure more sales I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't sell my soul to that piece of garbage. Book CM Punk and Bill Goldberg, Bischoff challenged. You want to book something that's gonna sell at Wembley? Book that. Bill Goldberg's last match against CM Punk. Dare you, dare you. Grab your balls, TK. Eric Bischoff isn't the biggest fan of Tony Khan. For him to suggest that Khan should book Punk versus Goldberg is wild and illogical. It might be a fun way for Goldberg to say goodbye to wrestling, but AEW fans would most likely not accept him, and it's hard to imagine CM Punk saying yes to that match. Still, it certainly would get a lot of attention like few other matchups could. We have over four months yet until all-in. Anything can happen in that time. It's looking more and more like CM Punk will have a big part in the show. Love him or hate him, few names in wrestling draw like he does. The same could be... Uh, said for Goldberg, and if recent comments from Khan are any indication, it's not completely crazy to imagine him in the AEW. And that one was Eric Bischoff dares AEW's Tony Khan to book CM Punk versus Goldberg for All In, by Sean Van Horn from the Sportster.com uh, for April 17th, 2023. All right, and onto some other entertainment news. This is from a website called cbr.com. And this is called The Goldbergs Reveals Back to the Future-esque Series Finale Info. ABC reveals the plot information for the Back to the Future-themed Series Finale of The Goldbergs by Brian Cronin uh, for uh, April 22nd, 2023. ABC has released the plot information for the Series Finale of The Goldbergs and the long-time sitcom set in the 1980s will apparently be doing a Back to the Future-themed episode for the final episode of its 10th and final season. A reoccurring gag throughout the long-running sitcom, based very loosely on the real-life childhood of show creator Adam F. Goldberg, is uh, is that the series' premieres of the show would often include elaborate homages to notable 1980s films so it is only logical that the series will end with one as well. Bev to the Future will feature Adam, Sean Giambroni, taking his mother, Beverly, Wendy McClendon Covey, to her high, school reu- her high school reunion, where he then has to make sure that she doesn't end up with the wrong man, just like Martin McFly in the classic 1980s time travel film where he had to make sure his mother ended up with his father at their high school dance. Again, The Goldbergs is well known for its 1980s pop culture references. In Season 2's I Rode a Hoverboard, Adam broke his arm and lied that it happened while he was riding a hoverboard like in Back to the Future Part Two, while his wacky uncle, played by Dan Fogler, experiences the drawbacks of of owning a Delorean, a DeLorean to drive. The Goldbergs began its annual tradition of 1980s movie homages with its premiere in Season 3 with a Risky Business homage. Season 4 homage The Breakfast Club. Season 5 paid tribute to Weird Science. Season 6 referenced Sixteen Candles. Season 7 saw the family going on a vacation a la National Lampoon's Vacation. Season 8 opened with the family flying a la Airplane. Season 9 honored the late George Siegel, who played Adam's grandfather, Pops, in a Bill & Ted's Excellent Adventure homage. And finally, Season 10's premiere saw a Field of Dreams homage following the death of family patriarch Murray Goldberg due to Jeff Garland's departure from the series. One of the trickiest things about the continuity of the Goldbergs is that its spin-off, Schooled, set in the 1990s, showed that Barry Goldberg, Troy Gentile, got back with his high school girlfriend, Lainey Lewis, schooled star A.G. Makaka, who was previously a regular on the Goldbergs, after he became a doctor, before then breaking up. On the Goldbergs, however, he is still in medical school and living with his girlfriend, Joanne Schwartz, then Trifon. His sister, the sister of his best friend, Jeff Schwartz, Sam Lerner, who was married to Barry's sister, Erica Goldberg, Haley Arachia. ABC reveals that Barry and Joanna make a surprising decision in the finale to demonstrate how serious they are as a couple. Will that decision contradict the continuity from Schooled? Fans will have to wait until May 3 to try out. Find out. And that was The Goldbergs Reveals. Back to the Future-esque series finale info by Brian Cronin for from CBR.com for April 22nd, 2023. All right, let's get to some articles from a website called The Forward, Jewish Independent Nonprofit, forward.com. And this one is called At Holocaust Museum, A Million Victims Are Still Nameless a new installation at yad vashem re- records the records the names of 4.8 million holocaust victims on large pages that let visitors search for lost family members the work is still underway to add new names and fix errors by offer adoret april 17 2023 this article originally appeared in Haaretz and was reprinted here with permission sign up here to get Haaretz's free daily brief newsletter delivered in your inbox yad vashem recently inaugurated a new installation uh, containing the names of 4.8 million jews murdered in the shoah collected over the 70 years since the holocaust remembrance center was founded the installation which has been dubbed the book of names consists of large printed pages that visitors can look through to search for the names of family members who perished in the shoah the final pages of the book haven't been uh, left Have been left empty for the approximately one million names yet to be found and which may never be found together with the effort at finding names yad vashem is also working to correct errors in its database including duplicate names and completely erroneous information in 2013 A similar installation was inaugurated by Yad Vashem at the site of the Auschwitz camp in Poland, which includes the names of 4.2 million Jews who perished in the Holocaust. In the decades since then, we've found 600,000 more names, and we're continuing to search for more, said Dr. Alexander Avram, director of the Hall of Names at Yad Vashem. The new names have come from a variety of sources, including pages of testimony completed by victims' families, sometimes as late as 80 years after the event, archival sources uh, discovered belatedly, proactive searches undertaken by Yad Vashem researchers in out-of-the-ordinary places, such as religious books in which victims' names were recorded as a memorial or on tombstones. We wanted to pass the five million mark. That way we could have said we did the best and the most that we could," Avram said in response to a question by Haaretz about the goals the authority has set for itself in the project. As to six million, which he called a mythological number, the researchers never expected <clears throat> never expected to achieve. <clears throat> Demographic research put the number at 5.8 million Jewish victims. But due to the circumstances of the Holocaust, it would be impossible to find all the names because not all of them were recorded and there are not enough witnesses. The work will continue for many more years, but as time passes it is becoming more difficult to find new names. We know that we will never be able to document them all. On top of the challenge of missing names, Yad Vashem is also contending with the uh, uh, opposite problem of duplicate names. The book of names contains the same person recorded two or more times, each one under a different name. In other cases, names appear uh, of people who survived the Holocaust. Researchers who specialize in locating the names of the dead and family members of Holocaust victims and survivors provided Hararetz with several examples of such errors. Our registry is more or less clean, but there's no way it can be a hundred percent so, said Avram. There is still a lot of work. Some names are still in the process of being verified, but we're reducing double counting as much as possible. We try to check if the same person appears two or three times in different sources and link them so that the person appears only once. Avram said the verification process is being done with tools that we develop for checking names in different alphabets and languages. As for names of people who appear in the Book of Names even though they survived the Shoah, Avram said that also happens occasionally but we're not talking about in the thousands the reason for these mistakes is that Yad Vashem's database of victims is based among other things on the names of those who were sent to extermination camps even if researchers cannot verify what ultimately happened to them sometimes you find it here and there a name was a person on the deportation list but that person stayed alive it can happen said Avram One of the ways Yad Vashem tries to correct errors is to make use of volunteers from Israel and around the world who in their free time look for mistakes and send back reports with recommendations for corrections. One of these volunteers is Shavit Ben Ari, an expert in archival and family research who has participated in various historical undertakings in Israel and abroad. Since he began volunteering at Yad Vashem two years ago, he estimates he has reported on more, some 2,500 names that appeared two or more times in the database because of recording errors or because they were provided by two or more different family members. I expect that in the coming years, this giant and praiseworthy database of names will be significantly updated, he said. Ben Ari believes... That the verification work can be made more efficient, enabling the database to be updated more often than once every few months as is the case now. As an example, he cites a member of his family, Elizabeth Klein of Hungary, who survived the Shoah but appears in the Yad Vashem database both as a victim and as a survivor, even if after researchers were notified. It takes the Yad Vashem people a long time to update the records, even after they are contacted, he said. Other sources who spoke with Haaretz backed up Ben-Ari's claims. My father, who survived the Lod's ghetto, is recorded as having perished. The documents I showed them in the application to change didn't help. Yad Vashem works on the assumption that no one there survived, said one person. Another source who spoke with Haaretz described a faster pace of work. To Yad Vashem's credit, I can say that every time I alert them to a survivor who appears as having perished, they correct it immediately. But there is still a lot of work, he said. And that was, At Holocaust Museum, A Million Victims Are Still Nameless. By Offer Adderit, April 17, 2023. Okay, and this next one is called... Former rabbinical students complained to conservative movement about sexism at seminary. Letter to Rabbinical Assembly's Ethics Committee describes culture of harassment alienating women and queer students. By Lewis Keene, April 17, 2023. Several former rabbinical students sent a letter to the conservative movement earlier this month demanding an investigation in what they describe as a culture of sexism and sexual harassment at the Ziegler School of Rabbinical Studies and calling for a change in leadership at the Los Angeles-based seminary. The letter to the Ethics Committee of the Rabbinical Assembly did not refer to any member of the Ziegler faculty or administration by name, according to a draft viewed by the Forward. A source familiar with the matter, who spoke on the condition of anonymity, said that the committee, known as the Va'ad HaKavod, Hebrew for honorable counsel, responded that it was unable to address such a general complaint about an institution. A draft of the letter uh, viewed by the Ford, included more than two pages of bullet point examples of staff at the seminary called the Ziegler School of Rabbinical Studies enforcing a double standard against women tolerating or contributing to homophobia and transphobia in the program and dismissing student concerns that the environment had become toxic. As a result, the letter states, Women, trans men, and non-binary individuals are not succeeding at becoming rabbis under Ziegler's tutelage on par with cisgender men. We believe that members of the administration have misused their power and been insufficiently reflective regarding the departures by women and others who leave the program, the letter continues. While the examples listed do not include unequivocally illegal violations we believe that the clear path of misogyny homophobia transphobia shaming and double standards consisted over two decades is sufficient to raise concern on the vaad's part the vaad has the authority to suspend or expel rabbis from the conservative movement and in 2021 it began publishing the names of censored rabbis on its website but it has never undertaken an investigation into an institution like Ziegler. The letter was signed by 13 former rabbinical students and community members of its parent institution, the American Jewish University, at the time the forward viewed the draft. A rabbinical assembly spokesperson said it was received April 10. Our goal is that every one of our spaces in our movement is inclusive, safe, and sensitive to diverse needs, experiences, and identities, the spokesperson said. We take the letter and the expenses it describes seriously and will begin a process through the Va'ad HaKavod as soon as it receives a formal complaint. We call on any respondent affiliated with the movement in this way to engage in a process with an independent agency to investigate these concerns and invite anyone with information to share it. That will lead to a more full understanding of these concerns and recommendations to change. It is the latest challenge facing Ziegler which was founded in 1996 and has produced some of the conservative Judaism's most foremost thinkers, but recently slashed tuition in response to declining enrollment. The conservative movement overall has struggled with shrinking synagogue membership for at least a decade amid periodic complaints of impropriety uh, impropriety in the rabbinite. Rabbi Bradley Shavid Artson, dean of the Ziegler School, did not immediately respond to a phone message Monday. AJU said in a statement in response to the story Monday morning, American Jewish University has not seen the letter described in the story and therefore cannot comment on its alleged comments. AJU and the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies are deeply committed to creating a safe, welcoming, and inclusive environment for every student. There are a range of measures in place at AJU to foster a safe climate for all students, staff, and faculty, including extensive training for staff and faculty, a lawful Title IX policy, and the presence of a Title IX officer, and rigorous protocols for investigating and responding to incidents of wrongdoing. All of these measures were created in compliance with applicable law and in cons- consultation with our outside experts promoting best practices. Uh, uh, though it is unclear uh, who organized the letter, the first signatory on the draft viewed by the Ford was Rabbi Danya Rutterberg, who was ordained by Ziegler in 2008 and now is Scholar-in-Residence at the National Council for Jewish Women. Ruttenberg also spearheaded the 2021 open letter signed by 500 rabbis contesting Stephen M. Cohen's efforts to return to public life after allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment caused him his job at Hebrew Union College, a reformed seminary in, based in Cincinnati. Ruttenberg said Monday she was unavailable for an interview. Two other people who signed the letter declined to comment or did not respond. The letter said it, it's, its impetus was the recent departure of yet another female rabbinical student from the program, but did not name her. Sources who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they feared professional repercussions said the student left after filling, uh, Title IX filing a file, Title IX sexual harassment complaint against a fellow student who was later expelled. The letter also calls for Ziegler to hire a well-trained Title IX officer to handle such complaints. It also complains about the school's handling of a stalking allegation made by a female student. The administration treated it as a disagreement between two equal parties and failed to protect her even after the other student threatened to kill her or burn down her apartment, the letter states, adding that the administration allowed the student who made these threats to stay in the program. If the authors of the letter follow up By naming specific rabbis in a formal complaint and the Va'ad chooses to investigate, the investigation process can take from three to eight months. That process is led and handled by the Va'ad without the help of a third-party investigator. American Jewish University President Jeffrey Herbst wrote in a letter to the AJU community that while he could not comment on the letter's contents because he had not seen it, the school had measures in place to ensure student safety on campus including rigorous protocols for investigating alleged incidents. He did not say whether the school planned to launch an investigation into the culture at Ziegler. First and foremost, AJU is deeply committed to, to creating a safe, welcoming, and inclusive environment for every member of our community, Herbst wrote. This will continue to be our North Star as we continue to grow and evolve our programs. And that was Former rabbinical students complain to conservative movement about sexism at seminary by Lewis Keane, April 17, 2023. Lewis Keene is a staff reporter at The Forward covering religion, sports, and the West Coast. He writes the weekly California briefing and can be followed on Twitter at ThisLewis. Alright and here's another one. This is called His synagogue barred him because he's gay. Now we protest outside each Shabbat. I just want to show where everyone who is Jewish is welcome, said Brian Mandel, a social worker, by Louis Keene, April 18, 2023. Kahila's Hollywood Hills builds itself as a young, vibrant, warm, orthodox congregation in South Florida. But every Shabbat since late January, a man has been protesting outside its doors saying the synagogue's rabbi banned him because he's gay. You have spiritually and religiously killed me," reads one of his handwritten signs. Brian Mandel and his husband of ten years started attending Kehillas Hollywood Hills in the fall of 2021, a few weeks after its inception in the home of Rabbi Benjamin Brodman, a high school Judaic studies teacher. In those days, the couple often helped make the Minyan the Quorum of Ten Required for Communal Prayer, and Mandel joined the rotation of men who chant Torah something he has loved for doing since his bar mitzvah four decades ago. I feel the closest to God when I lean, L-E-I-N, Mandel said, using the Yiddish term. When I'm leaning, I'm leaning for the community, but it's like almost as though there's no one else there, just me and Hashem. Because the Torah forbids male gay sex, homosexuality has long been a fractious issue in the Orthodox world, and Mandel is hardly among, alone among queer Jews struggling to find a spiritual home. While well, an ongoing survey by Eschell, a group that advocates for LGBTQ plus inclusion, has found hundreds of Orthodox rabbis who aspire to welcome queer members, several recent high-profile cases showed there remain large pockets of discomfort. A transgender woman was ousted from her teaching job at a Brooklyn yeshiva in September and in January said that her family was asked to leave Shank Shul, a modern Orthodox synagogue in Upper Manhattan affiliated with Yeshiva University. The university has been embroiled in a legal battle over its refusal to recognize an LGBTQ plus student club. And in 2019, a rabbinical student was asked to leave an orthodox seminary the day after his boyfriend proposed to him at, pop, at a pop concert. Rabbi Daniel Atwood was later ordained by an orthodox institution in Jerusalem. Rabbi Avi Shafran of Agudath, Israel of North America a Haredi orthodox umbrella organization, said a synagogue's decision to restrict LGBTQ attendance was not a matter of anti-gay sentiment, but rather pro-halacha standards. Two living men as man and spouse implies the violation of a very serious Torah law, Shaphan explained in an email. Mandel and his husband, who was not to be named for fear of being shunned from other shuls, were well aware of this sentiment. Having quit an Orthodox synagogue in Long Island, New York, years ago after a confrontation with an anti-gay guest speaker, so while they wore their wedding rings to shul, they did not tell the rabbi or fellow synagogue attendees that they were a couple. Whenever someone asked how the two were related, Mandel said that they would they they would say they were roommates and best friends. Mandel, 53, has struggled to find a synagogue that suited him since moving to South Florida in 2018. There was an Orthodox shul about two miles from his home, but he has diabetes and neuropathy in his feet, so the long walk on Shabbat was painful. There is a conservative congregation closer by, but it was slow to resume in-person services during the pandemic and does not read the entire Torah portion each week, which Mandel, an Orthodox Jew who believes in divine authorship of the Torah, prefers. So when Kehillah's Hollywood Hills opened around Labor Day in 2021, only a few blocks from Mandel's home, it felt like a godsend. But after more than a year of regularly attending services, he said Rabbi Broadman told him on January 9 that some of the members had expressed discomfort with the couple's presence, and that after consulting with his own rabbi, he had decided to bar them from services. Broadman, who teaches at an, at an Orthodox, local Orthodox high school and is originally from Detroit, declined to discuss the situation when reached by phone. So did the assistant rabbi and two board members of the small congregation. Mandel returned to Kahilas Hollywood Hills on January 21st, this time with a sign. Thus began his weekly vigil, perched on a footstool 20 feet from where his former shul mates are reciting the Shabbat prayers, I am a Jew who wishes to daven and lean Torah. One of his signs says, this is not a crime. I just want a shul where everyone who's Jewish is welcome, Mandel told me in a series of conversations last month. To me, it's a simple matter. I'm a Jew. Where do I belong on a Shabbos, if not shul? As a teenager on Long Island, Mandel felt he was different from the other boys in his modern Orthodox high school, but wasn't sure how. As an undergraduate at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, he realized he was gay. He later earned Master's Degrees in Social Work and Jewish Studies at Columbia and the Jewish Theological Seminary. Today he does Social Work part-time while he studies to be a nurse. Mandel met his husband who also grew up FRUM and who who had remained closeted as a student at Yeshiva University at an Orthodox Synagogue in Queens, New York in 1995. Their families did not accept their relationship easily. Mandel was not sure his parents would attend their 2012 wedding until he saw them there. They walked him down the aisle. Today the couple built what Mandel called a standard modern orthodox life in West Hempstead, a Long Island hamlet of about 20,000 people that is home to at least seven orthodox shuls. They observe Shabbat and keep kosher. They accumulate books and brought cans of tuna on vacation. After Mandel's husband, a former government worker with a green thumb, retired, the couple moved to Hollywood, where their backyard garden yields mangoes and avocados in the summer and tomatoes and peppers in the winter. While strict interpretations of Jewish law forbid gay sex and most large Orthodox institutions openly oppose same-sex marriage, there is a growing recognition in parts of the Orthodox world that queer Jews are an inevitable part of the community fabric. Over the past decade or more, Individual synagogues have grappled with how best to accommodate this reality, as more orthodox Jews have publicly identified as LGBTQ+. Uh, and groups like Eshel and JQY have emerged to support them. In 2016, an orthodox high school in Los Angeles adopted a non-discrimination pledge for LGBTQ students. Even Yeshiva University, which asked the Supreme Court last year to let it block an existing campus pride club, has offered to create a new, un- a new one under its own auspices. A white paper published last month by Rabbi Kenneth Brander, an Orthodox American Israeli rabbi who founded the Miami Yeshiva High School that now employs Broadman asserted that LGBTQ plus Jews should be allowed to teach at Yeshivas and be members of Orthodox synagogues as long as they are not sexually active. And in more than a few Orthodox synagogues, gay men are called up up for ritual honors, like any other congregants, and family memberships have have become household memberships. In a glacial environment, there's been real movement, said Miriam Kabakov, co-founder and executive director of the which offers a dating site, parent support groups, and retreats as well as tourist study resources. People's language is different. Everyone is taking it seriously. But that movement is hardly a universal, and experts say many LGBTQ plus Orthodox Jews who feel rejected by their community give up being observant or are alienated from their their religion altogether. Or worse, a 2012 study by the Israeli Health Ministry found that 20% of Orthodox LGBTQ youth had attempted suicide, compared to 3.5% for heterosexual Israeli youth. Mandel said... That after his shunning from Kehillah's Hollywood Hills, he he thought about intentionally overdosing on insulin. I just said, like, what am I living for? He explained. I just thought about it. I didn't do it, but I said, I'm going to. Unless I do something, I'm going to kill myself. So I said to myself, fight back. One of the signs he holds outside the synagogue on Shabbat asks in black and red marker. How many LGBT Jews need to leave Orthodox Judaism or die before you care? Hollywood Hills is not the first place Mandel and his husband have felt tension between their sexual and religious identities. They both said they would have been content to keep their relationship low profile in Orthodox spaces, but at times Mandel has felt pushed to speak out. A few years before they moved to Florida, Mandel said, a guest speaker at a Long Island synagogue where the couple had been congregants for years ranted about the decline of family values with such apparent contempt for gay people that Mandel, seated in the pews, rose to cut him off. The couple shared the story on the condition that the synagogue not be identified because they still have relatives in the area. I said, I didn't come to shill for this. I'm gay. I'm happily married to my husband, Mandel recalled, and I stormed out. The synagogue's rabbi, who was not leading the shul at the time, said he was unaware of the incident. The couple said they quit the shul and headed to a different Orthodox synagogue in the area. But at the new shul, Mandel said his husband was informed he would not be able to to lead services on the anniversary of his parents' death as is traditional because of what happened. The synagogue's then rabbi, who was no longer employed there, could not be reached for comment. There is no halacha or Jewish law restricting same-sex attraction, but the Leviticus verse prohibiting two men from having sex caused the act to eva, often translated to abhorrence or abomination. To some Orthodox leaders, then, recognizing queer Jews in any way is tantamount to endorsing the worst kind of sin. Those, to those advocating LGBTQ plus inclusion, though, this is irrelevant. Whatever the halakhic challenges around homosexuality may be, they say, the prevailing task of a synagogue is not to regulate its members' observance of Torah and mitzvot, but to facilitate it. They note that the most modern orthodox synagogues do not investigate members' or attendees' observance of other aspects of Jewish law. Jews who drive on Shabbat, for example, are seldom, if ever, barred from shul membership, let alone weekly services. Rabbis do not check to see if female members are allowing their purity protocols around menstruation or spot-check people's kitchens for cash root violations. They don't know anything that takes place in our home, Mandel said. They don't know anything about us. They were all talking about us instead of talking to us and making all these assumptions. We know the, what the prohibitions are. We both come from learned backgrounds, and none of that matters, he added. Just because of the fact that we're gay, we're excluded. While the couple's relationship may not have been clear to all in the shul, Mandel said that Rabbi Broadman seemed aware of it. Out of the blue, one time, as we were leaving the services, the rabbi said to us, I just want you guys to know you will always be welcome here. Mandel recalled one, of, the, uh, one on, of one early Shabbat. So even though we didn't come right out and say it with our rings and in the fact that we didn't mention wives we, and we lived together, I figured it's like a don't ask, don't tell situation. That's why he was blindsided when the rabbi asked him to meet with him that January day and then announced he would no longer be welcome. Uh, Mandel said Broadman told him that the rabbi he consulted had initially given approval for the couple's attendance back when the synagogue was in its infancy, but was now rescinding it. Mandel said that Broadman would not disclose which members had complained about the couple's presence. He kept saying that if it was his decision, he would allow it, Mandel said. He kept saying people suck. He said that a few times, and I'm like, "But you're going to, but, but you're going along with it." On a subsequent phone call, the synagogue's assistant rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Goldfarb, took a different tack. Mandel says he called us public des- desecrators of the Torah. Goldfarb declined to comment to the Forward. Mandel showed me screenshots of text messages he exchanged with Broadman later that week. If the rabbi was saying he could no longer pray with a minion, Mandel asked provocatively. Should he also stop wearing a kippa and sit? Eat non-kosher food, go to church? Should he advise Jewish people who don't know he's gay to avert their eyes? I'm sorry. Believe uh, me when I, when I know that you're understandably hurt, Broadman texted back. I really meant it when I said that he would stay in touch. We would stay in touch. Mandel said he, he has sent other messages since. And a few weeks ago, he printed Brander's 28-page treatise on queer inclusion and dropped it in Broadman's mailbox with a note. He says Broadman has never responded. Each Shabbat and on Jewish holidays, Mandel arrives outside the single-story White House where Broadman and his congregation gather around 9 a.m. as services are starting. He wears shul clothes and stays until after the prayers have concluded. On hot days, he sweats through his dress shirt. When it rains, he comes home soaked. The signs he carries are cutting. Maybe you belong outside, reads one that accuses congregants of slandering and dehumanizing him. Don't let Kahila's HH be the Kehillah of hate and homophobia, reads another. After a second Shabbat on the footstool, one of those congregants sent Mandel a text message, which he showed me on his phone. It really pains me to see you outside, the person wrote on january twenty nine I want to let you know that I wasn't part of the decision, and I spoke with the rabbi after I heard to let him know that I do not did not agree with his decision and was very hurt by it. I soon learned that the rabbi also was not in favor of the decision, but had discussed with many rabbis bigger than him and followed the advice he was given. The person added, "I am truly very sorry about the situation how the situation panned out.' I contacted the congregant by phone, but they declined to discuss the situation. Nearly three months since Mandel first showed up with his signs, some congregants greet him with the customary good shabbos. Others, Mandel said, tell him he's pathetic as they walk by. Then there's the man who regularly uh, split the Torah's reading with him. The Torah reading with him. Mandel said he enters the shul through the alley rather than look him in the eye. That man also declined to talk to me. During one Shabbat in February, Mandel said someone opened a window while the Ten Commandments were being read so that he could hear it. The synagogue always has a security guard, and one week when a new guard was on duty, Mandel said, the guard grabbed his signs. Mandel filed a police report with the uh, Broward County Sheriff that day that accused the guard of also hitting him, but decided not to press charges. When did Judaism become this way, Mandel said. I'm thinking, the Nazis prevented my grandparents from davening, and now Orthodox Jews are preventing me from davening. Still, Mandel said uh, he has no plans to leave either Orthodoxy or Florida. Each week, he said, I stand out there and I hear them davening, and I hear them laughing and eating Kiddush, and it feels humiliated all over again. At first, he said, the worst part was the people who ignored his protest as they entered the shul. But over time he said, the people who warmly greet read him on their way in have come have come to hurt more. The first group he is saying we don't use you. We, we, the first group he is saying we don't see you, he explained. The second group is saying we see you and you don't matter. Some weeks protesting makes Mandel feel better. Some weeks it makes him feel worse. He thinks about quitting. He comes back the next Shabbat. And that was. His synagogue barred him because he's gay. Now he's now he protests outside each Shabbat by Lewis Keene, April 18, 2023. And again, Lewis Keene is a staff reporter at the Forward, covering religion, sports, and west the West Coast. He writes the weekly California briefing and can be followed on Twitter at this Lewis. Alright, now we're gonna read some articles from Jewishjournal.com and uh, we start with this one. UCSB Student Senate passes hashtag and Jew Hatred Day resolution. The UC Santa Barbara Student Senate passed a resolution on April 19, urging the university to proclaim April 29 as hashtag and Jew Hatred Day by Aaron Bandler, April 21, 2023. The UC Santa Barbara Student Senate passed a resolution on April 19, urging the university to proclaim April 29 as hashtag N Jew Hatred Day. The vote breakdown was 16 in favor, 1 against, and 8 abstinations, according to our source. The resolution stated that one of the reasons the day is necessary is the various incidents that happened on campus in January, citing the vandalization of a classroom with false allegations that the State of Israel, the only Jewish state a perpetrator of genocide, femicide, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and white supremacy, as well as the dissemination of flyers with heinously anti-Semitic propaganda and trouts impacting the emotional and mental well-being of Jewish students throughout the community. The resolution also noted that the Student Senate held a meeting on Yom Kippur in 2022. Thus, senators, public forum speakers, and spectators were unable to participate due to religious observance. Therefore. As part of Hashtag Andrew Hatred Day, the campus will provide a safe space for Jewish students on campus and add the Jewish holidays named above to the academic calendar to make it easier for Jewish students to schedule makeup exams and assignments with their professors. The resolution urged the university to sign binding commitments by the conclusion of spring quarter 2023 to prosecute anti-Semitic behaviors with the same intensity as other racial, religious, misogynistic, homophobic, and otherwise bigoted acts. This resolution was carefully crafted over a period of several months. I do believe that something significant has been achieved through the support of this Senate, and I feel proud to be part of the legislative body of this university, Alexa Grines, an N Jew Hatred USB fellow, said in a statement. This resolution explicates the demands of the UCSB Jewish community and symbolizes our passion to work uh, towards being safely integrated into the broader student community. I believe that a student community that is welcoming to its Jewish students is a better campus environment for all students. This achievement is significant, but it is also only the first step on a path to make real progress toward our, uh, our campus life. I look forward to continuing to work towards ensuring the safety of each and every Jewish individual on this campus. Yehuda Jian, Campus Coordinator for End Jew Hatred, also said in a statement, This is only the first step as we have much more work to do before the Jewish community is given a level playing field on college campuses and has the same protections granted to other minorities. uh, April 29 was declared Jew, uh, hashtag end Jew hatred day in 2022 after the Holocaust Museum Center for Education and Tolerance in New York suggested it to end Jew hatred, the nonpartisan grassroots organization. April 29 was the day after Yom HaShoah in 2022. That was UCSB student Senate passes hashtag end Jew hatred day resolution by Aaron Bandler, April 21st, 2023. This next one is called Israel Marks Holocaust Remembrance Day. Watch! The opening ceremony is taking place in Warsaw Ghetto Square at Yad Vashem from the Jewish News Syndicate April 17, 2023. Israel began marking Holocaust Remembrance Day on Monday evening. The official state opening ceremony is taking place in Warsaw Ghetto Square at the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum on the Mount of Remembrance in Jerusalem. President Isaac Herzog and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivered remarks and Yad Vashem Chairman Danny Dayan was set to kindle the memorial torch. During the ceremony, Holocaust survivors Tova Gutstein, Ben Zion Reich, Judith Stolberg, Robert Bonfil, FM Gimmelstein, and Malka Rendel were each invited to light a torch and Shoshana Weiss spoke on their behalf. Holocaust survivor Ephraim Mole was chosen to recite the El-Malay Rachamim prayer for the souls of the departed. Yad Vashem broadcasts the entire ceremony live with simultaneous translations in English, French, Spanish, German, Hebrew, Russian via its websites in the respective languages. Additionally, <clears throat> simultaneous translation in Arabic is being offered on the Yad Vashem Arabic YouTube channel. One of the central themes of this year's commemoration is Jewish resistance during the Holocaust as the world marks 80 years since the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. In the advance of the commemoration, the annual Shaping uh, Memory competition was held to select the official poster for this year's proceedings. Chosen by a panel of judges, the winning poster was designed by 25-year-old May Nazan from Ramat Hasharan. The black in the center of the poster reflects the stain left by the war on humanity and the decline of moral values. On the other hand, the sun orb symbolizes the regenerating power of nature, growth, and hope in the shadow of hardship, said Nissan Yad Vashem is partnering with the Our Six Million organization to start a new tradition for Holocaust Remembrance Day, a memorial candlelighting ceremony in the Hall of Remembrance at Yad Vashem. Individuals attending the State Ceremony can light a candle bearing the name of a Holocaust victim before the start of the event. The general public is invited to light memorial candles in the Hall of Remembrance on Tuesday between 11 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Yad Vashem is calling on the public to fill out pages of testimony to commemorate every Jewish man, woman, and child murdered during the Holocaust. Volunteers are available to help survivors submit pages of testimony. Yad Vashem is also continuing its nationwide Gathering the Fragments campaign in an effort to preserve Holocaust-related documents, artifacts, photographs, and artworks, as well as to interview, document, and record video testimonies of survivors. That was Israel Marks Holocaust Remembrance Day. Watch from the Jewish News Syndicate for April 17, 2023. Here's this one. Son of last Iranian Shah visits Israel. Reza Pahlavi, son of the late Iranian Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who was exiled after the 1979 Iranian Revolution, visited Israel on Yom HaShoah by Aaron Bandler, April 19, 2023. Reza Pahlavi, the son of the late Iranian Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who was exiled after the 1979 Iranian Revolution, visited Israel on Yom HaShoah. Pahlavi announced his trip on, a- on April 16, stating that he planned to deliver a message of friendship from the Iranian people, engage Israeli water experts on ways to address the regime's abuse of Iran's natural resources, and pay respects to the victims of the Holocaust on Yom HaShoah. I want the people of Israel to know that the Islamic Republic does not represent the Iranian people, he added. The ancient bond between our people can be rekindled for the benefit of both nations. I am going to Israel to play my role in building toward that brighter future. After landing in Israel on April 17, Pahlavi tweeted that he and his wife, Yasmin, are very happy to be here and are, are and are dedicated to working toward the peaceful and prosperous future that the people of our region deserve. From the children of Cyrus to the children of Israel, we will build this future together in friendship. It is the first time that Pahlavi has ever visited Israel. Pahlavi and his wife attended the Nation National Holocaust Remembrance Day ceremony at Yad Vashem on April 17 and afterwards met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Yahu and his wife. Pahlavi also visited the Dee family to give his condolences after the family lost sisters Rina and Maya and their mother Lucy to an April 7 terror attack. A terror attack. Additionally, Pahlavi and his wife prayed at the Western Wall and met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog. Uh, the uh, Larisa Nader, Engagement Director for at the National Union for Democracy in Iran, tweeted, Israel is, in this sense, the first state to recognize the hashtag national revolution and its singular leader, Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi, at Pahlavi Reza. A move of great foresight. American-Israeli writer and speaker Emily Schrader tweeted, as an Israeli, I can't tell you how powerful it is to see this kind of solidarity against terrorism from Iranian Crown Prince at Pahlavi Reza and Yasmin. With such leadership, Israel and Iran will be reunited in our centuries of friendship. Pahlavi's visit to Israel comes as Iranian President Ibrahim Raizi threatened to annihilate Tel Aviv and Haifa in an April 18th speech. Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesperson uh, said at a recent press conference that Pahlavi's visit to Israel isn't worthy of discussion. That was Son of Last Iranian Shah Visits Israel by Aaron Bandler, April 19, 2023. Alright, here's this one Holocaust Remembrance Event held at U.S. Department of Justice. This year's event, titled Ray of Hope, featured a discussion between Holocaust survivors Peter Gorog and Emanuel Manny Mandel by Brian Fishback, April 19, 2023. In recognition of Yom HaShoah, the Federal Interagency Holocaust Remembrance Program held its 30th annual memorial event at the Great Hall of the Robert Kennedy Building, the headquarters of the United States Department of Justice. The Federal Interagency Holocaust Remembrance Program started at the U.S. Department of Education in 1994, according to the program's website. Comprised of dozens of federal agencies, its mission is to educate federal employees, students, and the public about the Holocaust through through the stories of survivors who show what can happen if prejudice, hate, and intolerance against any individual or group of people go unchallenged. This year's event, titled Ray of Hope, featured a discussion between Holocaust survivors Peter Gorog and Emanuel Manny Mandel. Gorog survived the Budapest ghetto with his mother before being liberated by the Soviet Army in January of 1945. He came to the US in 1980 and went on to have a successful career as a pu- in public service, having worked for the DOJ, Department of Defense, and NASA. Gorog conclu- Gorog's concluding words were about what he tells students When he shows them a photo of jews in budapest being herded away as the townspeople looked on and did nothing i tell the students and the audience that one thing you cannot be you cannot be a bystander when you see hatred when you see discrimination regardless of who Gorog said you just cannot stay silent because the six million that could not have been killed without having so many bystanders who did absolutely nothing to prevent the holocaust Mandel grew up in Hungary, where his father was cantor at the Rumbach Street Synagogue and one of the four chief cantors in Budapest. Deported to Bergen-Belsen, the family was separated. Uh, Manny and his mother were reunited with Manny's father in 1945 in Israel, then the British Mandate of Palestine. Mandel's family eventually settled in Philadelphia. He recently retired as a practicing psychotherapist in Maryland. Mandel lamented the pervasive, casual ignorance of history he sees. We do not know our history, Mandel said. It's amazing to me, and this is just a little side part. I'm a volunteer at the Holocaust Museum, and sometimes I spend time at the information desk and that's where people come and ask lots of questions, and I tend to ask them questions as well. Important questions like, where are you from? They can usually answer that, but not much beyond that. There's nothing really west of the mississippi west of the hudson river in new york our knowledge of history our knowledge of geography generally speaking no insult to anybody here is abysmal now if you don't learn history you don't know where you came from and if you don't know where you came from it's very difficult to decide where you're going attorney general uh, merrick garland shared a story of how the holocaust impacted his family before world war one Garland's grandmother and two of her siblings came to America seeking refuge from religious religious persecution. But there were two siblings of Garland's grandmother who stayed behind. They would be murdered in the Holocaust. Garland's mother-in-law fled to the United States in 1938 when the Nazis invaded Austria. The protection of law, the rule of law, is the foundation of our system of government. It is also one of the most powerful tools in the fight against hate. All of us knew about the disturbing rise in anti-Semitism in this country. Indeed, hate crimes against Jews comprise the majority of religion-related hate incidents reported in 2021. The Justice Department is doing everything in our power to combat the rise in hate-fueled acts and threats of violence. We are aggressively enforcing hate crime statutes. We have increased our capacity to investigate hate crimes and hate incidents. And we are working with state and local governments to do the same. We do this because we all know what happens when hate is allowed to take root. We do this to ensure that a tragedy like the Holocaust never happens again. And we do this because it is part of this department's historical inheritance. Garland then recalled the story of how, in 1945, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson served as the chief prosecutor at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Justice Jackson is known for his strongly worded opening remarks at the trials of Nazi war criminals. An excerpt. But none of these men before you acted in minor parts. Each of them was entrusted with broad discretion and exercised great power. Their responsibility is correspondingly great and may not be shifted to that fictional being. The state, which cannot be produced for trial, cannot testify and cannot be sentenced. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson, 1945. There were also remarks by Kristen Clark, the Assistant Attorney General, Civil Rights Division, as well as Eli Rosenbaum, Counselor for War Crimes Accountability at the G- DOJ. D- D- Rosenbaum spent nearly 40 years prosecuting Nazis as the head of the of- Office of Special Investigations. He also moderated the discussion between Gorog and Mandel. The 90-minute event clued, concluded with a candle lighting and a closing charge by Dornberg. Seven electronic candles were set up, six for each uh, million of the Jews murdered, and one representing hope that those who helped save Jews from being murdered. Before the candle lighting began, Dornberg asked for all survivors and descendants of survivors in the room to stand. Several dozen stood to be recognized. The Nazis wanted to extinguish your flames. Against all odds, Dornberg said. You are here with us as we look around you and think of those joining us from afar. Each of you is a miracle. Survivors such as Michael Taylor who was 100 years old and watching from New Jersey. Michael, you are part of the resistance and helped to save many people. Others of you dedicated your lives to the American public or those surrounding you. You helped us explore outer space. You provided mental health treatment. Because of your survival, your descendants have the duty to make an impact. My home for us as the descendants is that we emulate th- those like the recently departed Judy Human. She was the daughter of two parents who escaped the Nazis and her parents refused to allow their child to be mistreated because she had a disability. She was often called the mother of the disability rights movement and she served in several federal positions throughout her illustrious career. Your impact continues throughout the government and around the world. To our survivors, may you, your descendants, and all those you have impacted continue to be a positive change. That was Holocaust Remembrance Event Held at U.S. Department of Justice by Brian Fishback, April 19, 2023. Alright, this next one. Hebrew school enrollment across U.S. down by nearly half since 2006, report says. Even as the estimated number of Jewish children in the United States rose by 17 percent between 2000 and 2020, enrollment in Hebrew schools fell by at least 45 percent between 2006 and 2020 according to the report by the Jewish Education Project by Asaf Elia Shalev, JTA, April 19, 2023. Living in Brooklyn. Surrounded by synagogues and Jewish schools, Rachel Weinstein White and her husband hoped to find a place where their children could receive a Jewish education for a few hours each week. But they knew they didn't want to enroll at a traditional Hebrew school associated with a local synagogue. For one thing, White wasn't interested at the time in participating in prayer services, the main offering of most congregations. Plus, her husband is black and not Jewish, and they were not sure how well he or their children would be welcomed. So about eight years ago, she started her own program together with a few families, setting up a cooperative and hiring a teacher in an early version of the learning pods that would become a pandemic fad. It was just this incredible, magical year, White said. So many people started hearing about our little class and asked to join that, that that it became necessary to create a second class. It just kind of grew organically from there. Today, the school, Fig Tree, enrolls about 350 children across three locations and plans are underway to expand further. In hour-long classes on Sundays and weekday afternoons, children learn about Jewish holidays and history, engage in art and creative play, explore their local Jewish communities, and learn basic Hebrew in a program that culminates in a B'nai Mitzvah year. It overlaps significantly with traditional Hebrew schools, but outside the usual setting, a synagogue classroom that has become a cultural shorthand among American Jews for "route," ROTE, uninspiring Jewish education. That dynamic may be why fig tree is an outlier in a stark trend revealed in a new report. Enrollment in supplemental Jewish schools, those that students attend in addition to regular schools in public or secular private schools is down by nearly half over the last 15 years. Even as the estimated number of Jewish children in the United States rose by 17% between 2000 and 2020, enrollment in Hebrew schools fell by at least 45% between 2006 and 2020, according to the report by the Jewish Education Project, a nonprofit that promotes educational innovation and supports Jewish educators in a wide array of settings. The report identifies pockets of growth, mostly in the small number of uh, programs like fig tree that operate outside of or adjacent to synagogues, and in schools operated by the Hasidic Chabad Lubavitch movement. But overall, according to the report, just 141,000 children attend supplemental Jewish schools in the United States and Canada, down from more than 230,000 in 2006 and 280,000 in 1987. Some of the decline in Hebrew school enrollment is countered by increasing enrollment in Jewish day schools, where students study Jewish topics for at least part of every day. The number of U.S. children attending Jewish day schools has risen by roughly the same amount, 90,000, that Hebrew school enrollment has fallen since 2006, according to the report, though a significant portion of the increase stems from population growth in Orthodox communities, where the vast majority of students attend day schools. Miriam Heller Stern, a professor at Hebrew Union College Junior Institute of Religion, who was tapped to help uh, help design the study, said the results suggest that, as with many aspects of religious life today, Hebrew school enrollment cannot be counted on as an act of obligation or tradition. There's this idea that parents send their kids to Hebrew school because they went to Hebrew school and that's a rite of passage in North America, but that may be a myth, she said. People don't want to push their kids to have to do the same thing they did necessarily anymore. The report speculates about what has fueled the enrollment decline, from demographic changes to shifts in how American Jews think about counter anti semitism, to increased access to Jewish learning online, and also about what has allowed some schools to thrive. It notes that all of these supplemental schools that responded to its census said their schools helped children feel connected to the Jewish people. We believe that many factors have led to the decline in enrollment of students in supplemental schools in the last decade, said David Breifman, the Jewish Education Project CEO. However, it's also a myth that all supplemental schools don't work. The group is planning a series of online sessions with some of the dozens of researchers and practitioners involved in the report with one goal the sharing of success stories identified by the survey of the six identified in the report a common theme is urging experiential community based learning some of the promising models explicitly position themselves as infusing Jewish content into into childcare filling a pressing need for American families still it may be hard to counter the demographic realities of contemporary American Jews. Just a third of U.S. Jews in a 2020 survey said someone in their household was a member of a synagogue. That was the case for, uh, even for the majority of non-Orthodox Jews who said they identified with a particular denomination, a marker of traditional engagement. The wanting of synagogue affiliation is born uh, born out in the Jewish Education Projects Report, which found that more than 700 supplemental schools shuttered between 2006 and 2020, most outright, though as many as 200 have survived in a new form after merging. Temple Solai, a small Reform congregation in Fort Mill, South Carolina, shut down its Hebrew school in recent years. The volunteer-run program had up to eight students at a time, according to Russ Kobe, a lay leader. We sort of hit a point where we weren't able to sustain it, Kobe said. We only had a couple of people teaching and students from a wide range of ages and they wouldn't uh, show up every week. Also our wheelhouse seems to be retirement age and above. We don't have a lot of young families. Hebrew school mergers offer one possible approach to countering the enrollment decline. Two synagogues. One Reform and one conservative, located half a mile apart in Oak Park, Michigan, established a joint school about seven years ago and called it Yahad, which means together in Hebrew. One day a week, we meet at the conservative congregation and one day a week we meet at the Reform congregation. So we are keeping our kids involved in both, said Gail Greenberg, Yahad's director. My goal is to make it at the highest common denominator. For example, all of our food is kosher so anyone who wants to eat eat here can. The arrangement appears to be working. Last year, about 90 students were enrolled and this year enrollment is at 128, including 26 new kindergartners, with even larger numbers expected in the future. Another set of programs has grown dramatically in recent years. Those affiliated with the Chabad movement, which tend to operate even when when small and cost less than synagogue programs. Since 2006, the study says Chabad's market share in terms of enrollment has grown from 4% to 10%, and in terms of the number of schools, from 13 to 21%. Those figures might represent an undercount, according to Zalman Lowenthal, director of CKIDS, the Chabad Network of Children's Programs. While the study says there are some 300 Chabad programs in the United States, Lowenthal said he is aware of at least five hundred and perhaps as many as six hundred, a number driven up in the last decade amid a push by Chabad to launch more Hebrew schools. His count is based on the number of custom, customers purchasing the curriculum offered by his organization, which is also new in the last decade and, in his view, has contributed to improved quality among Chabad Hebrew schools. In general, non-traditional approaches to jewish education may be attractive at a time when american families have packed schedules and competing needs according to stern people want to be able to have bite-sized pieces just like you sign up for a six-week art class they might want a six-week uh six-weeks jewish class he said in this atmosphere <clears throat> some communities are finding ways to be more modular and more flexible and meet people's needs in different ways Stern also said, referring to six programs highlighted in the study as success stories, that the future calls for programs to offer an immersive experience, meaning that children become part of a community. They are getting something beyond just knowledge, Stern said. They are also getting connection and belonging, which provides the foundation for something bigger in their lives. Stern said she thought the report pointed to gaps in the way American Jewish communities allocate their resources. Supplementary education really was abandoned as a communal priority, she said. Individual communities had to find ways to fund it on their own. And I think that is part of why we're seeing a decline. Breifman said he's optimistic, both about the power of supplemental schools and the potential for them to generate new support from Jewish donors. The Jewish Education Project has sought out funding to pay for its study and failed, he said. But now that the numbers are clear, He is beginning to see interest from philanthropies. I don't want to count the dollars before they're granted, Breifman said, but the study is already beginning to have the desired effect of bringing more resources to the field. Fig tree isn't set up to benefit in a possible future-increased charitable investment in Jewish education. That's because the school is set up as a business, an expression of confidence in its growth and to insulate itself from the vagaries of philanthropy. It's a very unusual model for the Jewish education, and I would argue a self-sustaining one," White said. We don't have to rely on fundraising, and we're not beholden to some of the other requirements that a nonprofit would necessitate, which allows us to be nimble. That is, Hebrew school and Roman across U.S. down by nearly half since 2006, report says, by Asaf Eliot Shalif, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, April 19, 2023. All right, this next one is called Appeals Court Throws Out Challenge to Texas Anti-BDS Law. Texas's anti-boycott law is both constitutional and unfortunately increasingly necessary as the radical left becomes increasingly hostile and antagonistic toward Israel. Attorney General Ken Paxton by Aaron Bandler, April 20th, 2023. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed a lawsuit against Texas's anti-boycott divestment and sanctions movement law in an April 11 ruling, concluding that the plaintiff did not have standing. The plaintiff, Haseeb Abdullah, filed in the lawsuit in 2020 after Texas's employee retirement system divested from a Norwegian company that boycotted Israel. Abdullah, who used to work for the state government and currently works in Travis County, has contributed to that. Re- that retirement fund and will receive retirement benefits from it. Therefore, he argued in the lawsuit that he would suffer economic damage from the anti-BDS law. Abdullah also argued the anti-BDS law violated constitutional rights. The court did not buy Abdullah's arguments, concluding that Abdullah's claim of future economic loss from the law is too speculative and that he did not show that the law in any way infringed upon his constitutional rights. Thus. The court upheld a lower court's ruling that Abdullah did not have standing to sue. Texas's anti-boycott law is both constitutional and, unfortunately, increasingly necessary, as the radical left becomes increasingly hostile and antagonistic toward Israel. Attorney General Ken Paxton, Republican, said it in an April 18 statement, Though some wish to get rid of the law and see Israel fail, the state of Texas will remain firm in our commitment to stand with Israel by refusing to do business with companies that boycott the only democratic nation in the Middle East. In this case, I am pleased to see the court recognize that the plaintiff lacked any standing to bring this challenge. Thus, our important law remains in effect and I will continue to defend it relentlessly. In January 2022, a separate lawsuit against the law resulted in a preliminary injunction being issued against it. Paxton appealed the injunction to the Fifth Circuit, which remains ongoing. That was Appeals Court Throws Out Challenge to Texas Anti-BDS Law by Aaron Bandler. April 20, 2023. Okay, here is something else. House Dem Leader Jeffries, I don't share uncle's controversial views. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, said during an April 20 press conference that he does not share his uncle's controversial views after being asked about a recently unearthed op-ed in which he defended his uncle and the Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan by Aaron Bandler, April 21, 2023. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, said during an April 20 press conference that he does not share his uncle's controversial views after being asked about a recently unearthed op-ed in which he defended his uncle and Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan. CNN reported on April 12 that they had discovered a 1992 op-ed written by Jeffries in the Black Student Union's newspaper in Binghamton University where he defended BSU's decision to invite his uncle, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, to speak on campus. At that time, his uncle was under fire for saying in a 1991 speech that rich Jews helped finance the slave trade, and there was a Hollywood conspiracy to disparage black people, and it's being carried out by people called Greenberg, Weisberg, and Trigliani. Dr. Leonard Jeffries and Minister Louis Farrakhan have come under intense fire Jeffries, a board member for, B, uh, for BSU, wrote in the op-ed. Where do you think their interests lie? Dr. Jeffries has challenged the existing white supremacist educational system and long-standing distortion of history. His reward has been a media lynching complete with character assassinations and inflammatory erroneous accusations. The CNN report noted that Jeffries has previously stated to various media outlets that he didn't know much about his uncle's controversial remarks. When the UK Daily Mail asked about the op-ed during the April 20 press conference, Jeffries replied, I've made clear consistently that I did not share any of my controversial views that were expressed by my uncle more than three decades ago. Not now, not ever. As I've said, my track record and public service and professionally more than two decades of bringing people together and standing up for every single community, including the black and Jewish communities that are proudly represented in Brooklyn. The Republican-Jewish coalition was not convinced. Hakeem Jeffries still refuses to give the Jewish community an explanation as to why he lied and attempted to cover up his defense of his anti-Semite uncle and notorious bigot Louis Farrakhan, they tweeted. Representative Max Miller, Republican of Ohio who is Jewish, previously tweeted, From Louis Farrakhan to Ilan Omar to members of his own family, Hakeem Jeffries has spent his his adult life defending people who make anti-Semitic remarks. Those hateful views have no place in the House of Representatives, let alone defended by the Democratic leader. His pattern of behavior is deeply concerning and worthy of future further scrutiny. Representative Josh Gottenheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, who was also Jewish, has defended Jeffries. Per the Daily Mail, Gottenheimer told Punchbowl, I can personally attest American Jews and Israel are lucky to have Jeffries as an unflinching and sub- supporter and champion. The Jewish Democratic Council of America has also defended Jeffries, tweeting on April 14 that Jeffries is an unwavering partner of the Jewish American community and an ally of Israel in Congress. We are grateful for his leadership defending democracy, fighting anti-Semitism and right-wing extremism, and standing with Israel, they added. His long record in Congress on these issues is beyond reproach, and we condemn any assertion, assertions to the contrary. We are proud to call him a friend. Though they did not reference Jeffries' remarks in his April 20 press conference, the J.D.C.A. tweeted, Donald Trump calls us disloyal. Marjorie Taylor Greene claims we are space-laters. George Santos insults us by claiming he is Jew-ish. Kevin McCarthy promotes anti-Semitic conspiracies and extremists. Remind us, which other Republicans promoting anti-Semitism did we miss? That was... How's Dem Leader Jeffries, I Don't Share Uncle's Controversial Views, by Aaron Bandler, April 21st, 2023. Okay, now we're going to go to the commentary section. This is called Make Your Own Map, Eliza Licht on Being the Chief Brand Officer of You, by Lisa Ellen Niver, April 19, 2023. Thank you, Eliza Licht, for joining me on my podcast. It's never too late to start over. We hear stories all the time of people later in life going back to school for something completely new and different. You get one life, but many chances. Both of Eliza's books trained you to be a publicist for yourself. I learned so much from reading them. I changed my social media bios immediately after reading her suggestions. Her actionable steps helped me so much. Remember, no one will care about your book, your project, your job as much as you do. So learn to be the best chief friend officer of you that you can. Get your copy from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bookstop. Eliza says, you are your best PR person. Keep planting seeds and growing your brand on your carefully crafted social media, your newsletter, and perhaps even your own podcast. Remember, don't wait for someone to shine a light on you. On your, Make your own spotlight strategically. From our interview, Lisa Never. Good morning. This is Lisa Never from We Said Go Travel and I am so, so honored and excited to have this amazing, incredible author, Eliza Licht, here with me today. Eliza Licht. Lisa, I am so honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Never. You are so welcome. I don't know I don't know that everyone knows about both your books. You have so much going on. We want to talk about both books because they're both incredible. But will you tell people a little bit about the whole story of the D-K-N-Y-P-R girl and the millions of followers and the red lipstick. Tell us a little bit, in case people don't know, how did this happen for you that you were the fashion voice of Twitter for so long?" Licked. Uh, Hi, everyone. I started my career in the fashion industry in magazine editorial back in the the day. But fun fact, I was pre-med in college and thought I would graduate to be a plastic surgeon. I majored in neurobiology and physiology and I gave it all up to work in fashion. I spent a few years in editorial uh, and then moved over to Donna Karen corporate PR in the late 90s. And honestly, I did traditional PR for many years. I ultimately spent 17 years with Donna Karen working in communications. On the tail of the career, the last six years we started doing social media. Read our entire interview on We Said Go Travel. That was make your own map eliza licked on being the chief friend officer of you by lisa Allen niver april 19 2023 all right and here is another one a moment in time where do rabbis come from while some of my colleagues are second and third generation rabbis my journey took me took a different road by rabbi zach shapiro april 20th 2023 dear all someone once asked me where do rabbis come from while some of my colleagues are second and third generation rabbis, my journey took a different road. I grew up in a home that was very reformed. Please don't confuse very with secular. On the contrary, we were very involved in the reform movement. My sisters and I went uh, went beyond B'nai Mitzvah and uh, onto confirmation and post confirmation. We were all leaders in our Temple youth group. I spent three years as, at a Reform Jewish summer camp. It was during that first year at camp, when I was 11 years old, that I met young guitar-playing rabbis, and I was inspired by the music. I came home, told my parents I think I want to be a rabbi, and proceeded to teach myself to play guitar. In high school, my love of music intertwined with a growing aspiration to bring goodness into the world through the treasures of Judaism deepened my desire to choose the rabbinite as my profession. My own rabbis in Boston, Bernard Melman and Ronnie Friedman, shared... If you want to be a rabbi, don't major in Judaic studies in college. Get a good, well-rounded liberal arts education. So I attended Colby College in Maine, and I majored in Spanish. In my senior year, I applied and was accepted to the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, the Reformed Jewish Seminary for rabbis and cantors, as well as a school for educators and nonprofit professionals. Hucjir gave me the tools, sharpened my dreams, challenged my brain, and nourished my soul. After five years earning a master's in the process, I received Simcha Rabbinic Ordination. So why did I become a rabbi? To be a learner and a teacher. To help people find wholeness. To enter the rhythm of families in a variety of life moments. To connect with people to their ancestors as well as their descendants. To find meaningful ways to connect with God, to engage in tikkun olam, reparation of the world, to foster a love of Israel, to disturb people who ignore those in need, and as I realized early in life, to bring goodness into the world. Perhaps you or someone you know would love to do this as well. Where do rabbis come from? Sometimes they come when someone takes a moment in time to just ask the question, have you thought of becoming a rabbi? with love and shalom, Rabbi Zach Shapiro. That was a moment in time. Where do rabbis come from? By Rabbi Zach Shapiro. April 20th, 2023, jewishjournal.com. All right, let's wrap it up here with going to the Marketplace section of jewishjournal.com and read some ads. And as usual, to reserve your Marketplace ad space, call 213-368-1661. Space reservation and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursdays. So here's one. Keep up with what's happening in town. JewishJournal.com slash calendar. Okay, and let's go to this one. Hillside Mortuary. Providing compassionate and professional mortuary services for families of all faiths. Hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships, enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements www.hillsidememorial.org slash advanced dash planning. For more information about our online floral service, please, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org slash floral dash service. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, Los Angeles FD number 1358. And here is another one. Advertise your product or service here in the Jewish Market Market. The jewish journal marketplace and let's get social jewish journal is on facebook twitter and 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 instagram and folks it looks like we are just about to come to the end of another edition of stan dunn's jewish edition let's just throw in one more for good measure hillside memorial plot one plot for sale in the court of dedication block six plot 88 space one sold out location and close to parking Asking price, $32,000, includes endowment and transfer fee. Hillside price, $36,075, call 818-389-0774. And this one, Mount Sinai, Hollywood, one plot for sale, section of Rama, uh, IS3, lot 1811, Rama 21, asking price, $18,500, OBO. Endowment included, Sinai price, $20,000. Call 818-430-8959. And that will definitely do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that's happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.